Time to Travel with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Time to Travel. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting to South African entrepreneur Brandon Wilson about the launch of the awesome South Africa mobile app. Graham Howe will be back with us again this week to continue telling us about his trip to Ireland. And this week we're heading off to Dublin. Kerry Harvey will be joining us and we'll be exploring the Arctic Circle. And Heta van Dierventer to Blanche, culinary manager of Lamotte and Pioneer à la Motte restaurant, will be entertaining us to a special Wineland's tea. There's a list of available documents for time to travel. You can find them on Facebook. Go to Travel on SAFM. If you'd like any of them, post a message there. But please do remember to include your email address so I can send them to you. You can also contact me on travel at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Time to travel with Karen Key. Graham Howe is back with us again this evening. The last time we were chatting, we were about all the grand homes, castles, whatever they were in Ireland, but we never got around to his time that he spent in Dublin. So he's back again this evening. Graham, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Corin. Right, so we were near Belfast last time. Now we're in Dublin this week. Yes, I finished my is, trip. Yeah, in, one of your favourite cities, Dublin. Absolutely. This time I actually set out to see the 10 most unusual or bizarre things in, oh. in Dublin because, you know, it's got great museums and galleries and, and all the national Celtic attractions and that kind of thing. But uh, I had done a bit of research and first off I went to see one of the city's oldest attractions, the Mummies, in the Church of St. Mickens, it's pronounced. It was founded, this church, by the by Danish invaders in apparently by Vikings, basically, in 1095. And pilgrims have come here for centuries to go down into the crypts and to see the mummified remains um, which go back about 800 years to a crusader in fact and it's a very macabre sort of setting you, you climb down beneath the church down these old stone steps into the crypts and then there are these little side rooms and what happened was that all over the years um, the coffins were stacked up and the, and the coffin lids crumbled the wooden lids over time and then these the petrified remains spilt out um, and it's very atmospheric and and the uh, the tour guide, a man called Peter Condell, is I, I would imagine was probably an actor in his past life, and does these uh, is very dramatic about it. Apparently, the air uh, is uniquely dry down there because of the I think it sits on a bed a bedstone of limestone, and then on peat underneath that, and it's literally mummified the remains by it. So they're petrified; they they've dried out these oh. remains. And one of the things that pilgrims have come there for years over the over the centuries is to shake hands with an 800-year-old crusader who was apparently so tall that they had to break his legs to get him into a stout oh, coffin my. and then fold mm -hmm. them up. He had one gnarly old finger, which is t very abnormal, it very, was very sort of uh, elongated. And the thing to do is to touch, for good luck, the hand of this crusader, which might seem a bit ghoulish. Just a little bit. I <laughs> mean, fact, it almost sounds very sort of almost Dracula's type stuff. Well, it does. Well, apparently Bram Stoker, who was, uh, who was from a, a suburb in, in Dublin, used to get taken there as a child oh, by his parents. Oh, you surprised that he write, wrote what he did then. And uh, the title of, his, of the, his famous novel, Dracula, reputedly comes from the Irish words droch and fula, which means bad blood. 
But there were remains of nuns and monks and lords and ladies and in these atmospheric old vaults. And in the middle of our tour, I was left alone down in the crypts. I was about to ask, you didn't go there by yourself, by Peter, did you? Yeah. Uh, who said, oh, the rest of the tour, he got a, a buzz on his page. He said, the rest of the tour groups arrived. I thought I was getting a personal one-on-one. He said, hold on a minute, I'll go and fetch them. And the next minute, he leaves me and sort of in the dark there with this 800-year-old uh, mummified crusader. And apparently in medieval times, they used to really drive a stake through a lot of the uh, bodies to make sure um, that the corpses really were dead because they, wasn't were, the whole they were concerned about this catalepsy, this, this which, which Edgar Allan Poe also writes stories about where, where people would fall asleep and into a coma and not really be dead. And so many people used to write in their will they wanted to be buried with a bell so they could ring yes, it in case yeah. they woke up um, <laughs> and were uh, alive. One of the little sort of uh, crypt areas there contains the Nationalist Rebels of 1798, the Shears Brothers, and the, the death mask of their leader, Theobald Wolf Tone. And they, he was the leader of one of the many nationalist uprisings against the British over the years. And they were hung, drawn, and quartered before being buried. Oh. So their corpses, um, and, and apparently, oh. you know, their heads left That's on left a them, yeah. stake for the crows to pick and all that kind of thing. Uh-uh. So, and they're also the burial crypts of the Duke of Leitrim and his family. It's really maybe one of the more ghoulish attractions to see, and the church itself's really worth looking at um, as, as well. But I did find it quite fascinating. Yeah, now you said that you went to go and look at all the sort of unusual things this time yes. what was the next thing it couldn't be more sort of spooky than that thing where did <laughs> you go next? i did a really fun thing and i went to another one of the newer attractions the national leprechaun museum oh well you're in ireland you had to do that and it's one of dublin's newer attractions it grew out of an art installation originally and storytellers take small groups um into it's almost like sort of uh, alice through the looking glass oh, you know, right, it's got okay. a wonderland sense about it. it's obviously very popular with children and this irish fascination with the little people mm. you know even apparently until recently some uh, in some rural areas young boys were dressed in dresses until they were about three years old b- because the fairies were known to kidnap little boys but left little girls oh, alone. Really? and they they, <laughs> they always say to you amusing but after three years it's a lifestyle choice <laughs> But um, the uh, you know there are all sorts of little people like from banshees to leprechauns and these were some of the stories we heard while sitting around the wishing well and you follow the rainbow to look for the leprechaun's pot of gold which they supposedly hide and are very crafty and they say if you ever do meet a leprechaun you've got to ask one unambiguous question where is the pot of gold or take me to the pot of gold you you actually enter through this giant tunnel and the whole thing is meant to disorientate you so you experience the, the scale not from a Schumann but from mm. a leprechaun. Capricorn's perspective. So one room you go into, they have these giant tables the size and, and chairs the size of the, the studio roof and you have to climb up a ladder into this chair and then you take pictures and you look like a leprechaun of course sitting mm. in, this, in this Schumann chair and you sense how big a Schumann looks to a leprechaun which I suppose is sort of ankle high. And they also talk about the little people from around the world and ask me and in fact the, the our storyteller was fascinated by legends of the Tokolosh oh, in right. South Africa. Our guide manager Mark Mark Gearan told us that apparently Walt Disney, who filmed one of the first famous films in the 50s about leprechauns and the, the little people in Ireland, that his grandfather was a storyteller from Ireland, Walt oh, Disney's right. okay. grandfather. It's a fun thing to do. It's, it's also set, the, the museum is set in the old city morgue. 
Um, so uh, it's it's really oh, a game. Got okay. it's quite atmospheric, and many of the original tombstones from the morgue are set around the entrance and on the square outside the National Leprechaun Museum. So it's a bit of fun to do it. Now I was a little bit concerned about you the last time you were here because you mentioned you were talking about the grand houses and the castles and the whatever they were called, and one of them was quite close to a place called Bushmills. Now that's the big whiskey destination. Yes. You never mentioned having gone there. Did you actually get to any whiskey places when you were now in Dublin? Oh well, I did in fact. In fact, the, the newest attraction in Dublin, which only opened in November 2014, is the Irish Whiskey Museum. Oh right, so we did get and to the whiskey. Right on okay. the College Green at Trinity College, where the Book of Kells is and the oh, Long right. Room. Oh right, okay. And it's, so it's set in the heart of the city, and they offer guided tours and tastings and tell the whole story of the culture of the famous whiskey barons of Dublin, you know, the Jamisons and the mm. Powers and the Teelings, but also the evolution of the whiskey industry since the 1600s and its origins when the when monks from the Middle East brought over these alembics, these stills used to make perfumes. And the local Irish thought, oh, this is a fantastic idea, but couldn't we make some, something <laughs> interesting to drink? <laughs> Forget the perfume. You know, we only bathe three times a year yeah. anyway. Mm. So they, they took up making potin, or po I think it's potin, which is a moonshine like, like a Vitblitz, and and then developed the whiskey industry there from there. In fact, our guide, Dan O'Sullivan, at the Irish Whiskey Museum, he said, and, and the Irish always claim to have invented whiskey, which they spell with an E-Y, mm. whiskey, and he said, we gave the Scots two things, he said. Um, we gave them whiskey and the kilt, and we meant the kilt to be a joke. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's a very funny tour conducted in typically sort of Irish fashion. And apparently he said that they used to give the whiskey uh, is derived from the Gaelic word iskabahar, uh, which the which the, the invading uh, English uh, or British took to be a whiskey, iskabahar. And it means the water of life. And he said they used to give it to plague victims in the medieval period as a cure. And, and Dan said it didn't work, but at least they had a less painful <laughs> death. <laughs> Shame. So anyway, by the 1890s, Dublin was the whiskey capital of the world and home to famous brands. Um, did you know that, in fact, the word Shabin, which we still use mm. in South Africa, is an Irish word originally. Oh, I didn't know meant an illegal bar or speakeasy. Really? In the days when many of the local village speakeasies or bars um, were not licensed we and operated out of the back of a group. And Irish miners brought it over to South Africa oh, in really? the 1800s okay. to Kimberley and to the Rand, um, you know, sort of gold and diamond miners, and opened up Shabins there. So, and, and so... They were fascinated when I told them this story. They, they hadn't heard that. So oh. much like with Tokolosh, which they had mm. heard about, hopefully they're going to include the story of the Shabin. Well, hopefully. Um, so, yeah. uh, did you get to test any of this whiskey? We did, yes. After learning about the decline of Irish whiskey and Dublin during Prohibition in the late 1920s and 30s in the US and the evolution of modern Irish whiskey, we actually tasted some of the new brands on the market, um, some of which have been made in Dublin for the first time in decades, like uh, Teeling and the Irishman. And I also wasn't surprised to hear that the rebels of uh, the Easter uprising in, in 1916 in Dublin, had one of the first things they'd done was to occupy the Jamison yeah. distillery, <laughs> which I'd also do if I was going to well, take over a town. And, of course, Jamison, the distillery, is one of the top ten tourist attractions in Dublin, although Guinness at St. James Gate Brewery, which is an entire sort of suburb, entire area in Dublin is the number one attraction in the whole of Ireland which draws over a million visitors wow. every year and makes I believe something like a quarter of a million pints of Guinness every day at that distillery. 
Now, you mentioned the 1916 Easter Uprising in Dublin. That's the centenary coming up quite soon. It is, yes, next year, in fact, mm. at, at, at Easter. So on my hit list of things to do in Dublin this time, I also went to the GPO, and they actually have a post office museum there, which is very quaint, at the general post office. And, which, and the GPO in Dublin is this grand neoclassical building. And the giant columns outside, you can still see that it's pockmarked with bullets mm. from the siege of the post office sure. when the Irish nationalists read the proclamation of the Irish Republic here and um, a major new exhibition will open here in spring 2016 for the uh, centenary called GPO Witness History um, but I quite like the old display which uh, actually reenacts a day in the life of the post office with the postmaster you know getting this huge script when when the yeah. rebels storm in and someone comes through to say there's some people here to see you sir yeah. and this kind of thing <laughs> and they've got the very first post box in the world there which was uh, invented yeah. by a writer called Anthony Trollope who was a postmaster general mm. in, in Ireland of course in the south they're green and in the north they're yeah, red yeah, it's one of the ways to tell it, yeah. that you've, you've passed from the south into the north and vice versa um, and then the other thing that's really worth going is to the Kilmarnham Jail. You can do a whole Easter 1916 uprising tour of Dublin and go to the cemetery where the rebels are buried. And but the Kilmarnham Jail is where they where they were incarcerated um, and then executed. And you can go to the very evocative courtyard. And some of the rebels were so badly injured that they actually had to prop them up. Um, to, in order to execute them, believe it or not. So, again, there's sort of quite tragic and ghoulish stories. And history buffs can do this walking tour. And you can also go to um, St. Stephen's Green, which I love walking around the park there. It's the sort of one of the heart of Dublin. And they used to call a truce to the uprising every day, apparently, so that the groundsmen could come in and feed the frightened ducks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, only an island. And when in Glasnevin, which is where the most of the Irish nationalist leaders are buried in the cemetery, and you have to visit Kavanagh's pub because it's known as the Gravedigger's pub, and it's right between the graveyard um, and the and, and the town. And and apparently the Gravediggers used to knock on the back of the pub, so they opened up a wall for them to have a beer while they were d doing this thirsty work of digging someone's grave. And so uh, it's another interesting story. You mentioned uh, Stephen's Green. Do you want to yes. You didn't go tell me too much about that. What, what, what exactly is that and what can you it's see a, there? It's a park. Um, oh. It has lovely um, sort of statues and busts of some of Dublin's most famous um, residents like uh, Beckett and uh, James Joyce and W.B. Yeats. And it's just one of a dozen or so Georgian squares in the city and all the tulips and flowers were in full blossom. And in fact, it is an interesting story because Arthur Guinness, who was a great philanthropist and the founder of the of Guinness, Guinness Empire, yeah. yes, um, and he forced an act through Parliament in 1877 to open these parks, and including St. Stephen's Green, which used to charge one guinea to, to, so that only the sort of rich folk could walk around the, uh, the green. And in fact, he opened it up and it's still a free attraction. In fact, there are many free attractions like the National Museum and Art Gallery gallery in Dublin, which is very close to the green. I had to laugh while walking past there, I spotted a Viking splash tour sitting with Viking horns wearing helmets, um, the group of tourists. And it's an amphibious tour. It's one of these tours that you a, do a sort of a street tour um, by bus, and then you splash into the River Liffey, which runs through Ireland, and it, it's a bus that can float as well. Oh, right. um, but you're all dressed as Vikings. It was, it was very funny. And the Little Museum of Dublin is another great attraction, What's which that? I like to go to. And it has a sort of intimate stories. A, they have Pull a Pint Day, where you can go and drink and share a pint with a local Dubliner. So it's not easy with leprechauns, the Little no, Museum. Oh, no, it isn't actually. No, that's true. It's It's got sort of things that tell an intimate little history 
history of Dublin rather oh, than right. That's actually quite nice. History. I like that. And so they've got lots of artefacts mm. that ordinary Dubliners have given them, like a, an old tram seat from one of the first trams in Dublin. Or, oh, that's nice. You know, just interesting stuff. It's, it's, it is. Uh, it's, it's a very uh, a very warm sort of short tour to do there. And I think the idea that afterwards you can meet with a local and, sh- and have a pint mm. and he'll just answer your questions on that's Dublin. Nice. Like it's that. a local's an insider's perspective. That's, that's the little Dublin. Now getting towards the end of your tour through Dublin, but then you decided to go underground again. You, you, you scared yourself at the very beginning with dead crusaders and gnarled fingers and things. Yes. What was this now? You went well, it to was the sort of Christchurch Cathedral. It was a whimsical walking mm. tour of Dublin. So I went uh, to, to Christchurch Cathedral, um, which is St. Patrick's Cathedral. You know, they're the two great, the one's Anglican and the other's Catholic. And down in Christchurch Cathedral is famous for its crypts. And it's set on the uh, site of, I think, one of the first Viking settlements. So it goes back over a thousand years. And there's a monument to Strongbow, the Anglo-Norman nobleman who invaded Ireland. And according to local legend... The small figure in stone next to him is his son. And they, according to a local guide, I don't know whether it's true, I said, gee, he's really short. So he said, no, well, his dad cut him in half with his mighty sword when he accused him of cowardice after a battle in Ireland, you know, 800 years ago. So he said, whenever he's shown in stone, they show his son as this tiny figure because then he found half of him. But I don't know whether that's true or not. You know. um, and also down in the crypts is one of the most famous sites, which they call Tom and Jerry, and it's the petrified remains of a cat and mouse who were found in the massive organ pipes while restoring it. And they died, apparently. They were trapped in the organ pipes. And then only their skeletons were left. And so in a glass case down in the crypt, they removed them from the organ pipe. There's this cat and a mouse caught in the middle of a chase, which they call, the locals know, called Tom and Jerry with their normal uh, sense of humour. Now, what now? Is there anything left? You said you did eight. Yes, that's ten, eight things. That's I eight. think you so did, far. Yeah. So, so the last two I went to see, and um, they have what they call a thousand-year-old bog butter. You uh, mentioned this once before. Yes, and I'd gone to Limerick to the Hunt Museum to see one of them, but at the ones in the National Museum, they've still got the butter in. Yes, although yeah. you're not allowed to try it. I'm not sure what so a thousand-year-old no. butter would taste like. Yeah. But as they say in Ireland, anything that would fall into one of our bogs will be preserved forever. So one's tempted to sort of, you know, jump in yourself and see if people are looking at you in a thousand years <laughs> and saying, look, it's the mummy of a tourist. They have an amazing collection of Celtic medieval art, probably the finest in the world at the National Museum, including these old bog butter urns and gold chalices and the 3,000 year or so old Tara brooch. And then last of all, I just actually spent the rest of the day walking back and forth over the Liffey on most of the 14 bridges which cut Dublin in half and and there's a new Samuel Beckett bridge named after the famous novelist and playwright who wrote Waiting for Godot and one of Dublin's most famous literary sons and this bridge is shaped like a harp like a giant harp so it's, okay. it's, it's really very exquisite and then I also walked over one of the oldest the Harpenny Bridge which is a, a half penny bridge you used to pay half a penny to cross it but it's free today um, named after the old toll and lovers used to tie their knot uh, on the bridge and used to actually literally today they leave a padlock with their yes I've heard about this uh, before clipped to the side of the mm. bridge which is very romantic and uh, then lastly there's the Sean O'Casey their great poet a footbridge which celebrates his life and so um, and to, to end on a thoroughly modern note I walked into the Docklands which is where all the modern Irish architecture is and where the, the headquarters of Google Europe are there along with many other American 
franchises from Starbucks to Facebook. And it's very interesting that they choose Dublin as this very trendy happening city. And there they have what they call, which is not a real bridge, they call the hyperlink. They have three different glass buildings, and then there's this hyperlink, a glass tunnel corridor above ground linking up the three units. And then they have the traditional Google colours um, outside. So I ended my walking tour of Dublin right there. And in fact, that is the area in the old harbour which gave Dublin its name. The old Irish Gaelic, Dublin, two different words, means black pool. I don't think it's the origins of Guinness. I, don't, I think they used pure mm. water from the mountains there to make Guinness. But Blackpool was the original name of Dublin from the early Vikings and, and invaders because um, it was a very black uh, river, probably coloured by the peat and, and, mm. and the bogs, I suppose. Um, so I ended my grand tour of Ireland there. Well, sounds like you had a fabulous time. That was wonderful. And I, now I believe you're going off to America now. I am, yes. I'm off to do uh, a bluesgrass and bourbon tour through uh, Kentucky oh, to look at the Graham. heritage of the old distilleries and, and, and the lovely bluesgrass music. I seriously got off you every time you come in here. <laughs> right, so you'll have to come back and tell us about that. Now. I'd love to do that. Okay, yeah. so as soon as you get back, just give me a shot. Thanks, Great. Well, in the meantime, Graham was chatting to us there about his time in Ireland, and he visited the Wild Atlantic Way as a guest of Tourism Island and all the other places as well. Well, for more information, you can call Tourism Island in Johannesburg on 11 Four six three double one three two, or take a look. There's a couple of websites. There's Ireland.com, WildAtlanticWay.com, and VisitDublin.com. Time to travel with Karen Key. Kerry Harvey is back with us again this evening, and you're going to be quite surprised. Every time we before we normally talk to Kerry, she's in a desert. She's not in a desert tonight. She's in the Arctic Circle. Well, I mean, I suppose it's a kind of a snowy, icy type of desert. Kerry, good evening. Welcome back to the show. Hello, Karen. Good to be back. Was that the point? It's like a snowy, icy type of desert thing where there's nothing yes. there. I think technically, um, you know, the Arctic, as in Antarctica, they are classified as, as deserts um, simply because they're just so barren. Um, well, apparently barren, actually, because um, I was in the Arctic Circle in the summer and it was anything but, to be honest. Now that's very different, though, being in the Arctic Circle in summer. It's not all just white snow, ice. It's, it's green, surprisingly. Yes. It actually looks like, you know, spring in South Africa in an Arctic summer. And we were about 200 kilometers into the Arctic Circle. So, you know, we weren't right on the edge. We were substantially into that area. And in summer, it's grassy and there are wildflowers. And it, it really does look like spring here. So it was a huge surprise. Now, I just want to, one thing right at the very beginning of this interview is I just want to say up front, I'm not going to try and pronounce anything. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. I'll leave it um, up to you. The village, the village we were in is um, Yukasyov. You know, they, they do have words with double dots and things, and I'm mm. not sure how those all work. But um, the little village we were in was Yukasyov, and the reason we chose that village was because that is home to the iconic Ice Hotel, which I think is on a lot of people's bucket list just because it's something so completely unusual. Now, before we get to that, tell me how you got there in the first place. Well, I was on. I was actually on a Baltic Sea cruise. Oh, um, I remember that. Stockholm was our, our starting and ending point. Um, so at the end of this cruise, which you know took us through Russia and places we have spoken about before, we stopped off in Stockholm and boarded an overnight train into the Arctic Circle. So 
that, you know, when, when South Africans think of trains, they think of, you know, horror trips unless you, you're going on a luxury train. But the Swedish trains are absolutely spectacular. The overnight trains even have showers on board. Um, it is impeccably clean and, you know, terribly Swedish. Everything works. Everything's just absolutely awesome. And it kind of needed to be because this was a 17-hour trip. So, um, But very, very comfortable on a sleeper train. Um, they even give you toiletries and amenities on board. Wow. Okay. Mm. So you started off. This was part of that Baltic cruise. We spoke about this a while ago. You were off, off it was Cruises International, I think it was. The Windstar you were on, wasn't it? That's right. That's right. Yes. So when the ship docked in Stockholm, we jumped off and, and got on the train and headed as far north as we could in our time allocation in Sweden. But it was literally in a straight line from Stockholm all the way north to um, where the train, well, where we jumped off was a town called Kerna. And from there, it's just about a 15-kilometer trip to the little village of Yokosov, where the ice hotel is. Um, and in, in reindeer country, and it's just beautiful. Now, you mentioned the ice hotel, but you were there in the summer. Um, obviously, the ice hotel wasn't evident then. Were they making it then? Was, I mean, had it melted by then? What was, what was the status of the ice hotel when you were there? There was no ice hotel because it literally was in the river running by, the Torna River, which runs through this village. That is, you know, the the bedrock, ice rock of the ice hotel every year. It's actually it's built every single year from scratch in a in the same location on the on the river bank. The river's obviously frozen solid then. Um, but they start building the ice hotel in about late November, I understand. It takes about a month. Loads of people work on it, about eighty or hundred people. That's the builders as well as the artists because the ice hotel is actually a massive art piece. Um, everything in it is ice. The bed, the bar, the glasses you drink out of, absolutely everything, including all the decor. You know, all the sculptures are, are also ice. So it's, a, it's quite a, a masterpiece, a master art piece. It's open, I think, until around March when it starts melting slowly. And by May, June, there's no ice at all. It's all flowed back into the Torna River and then they start again um, later on in the year. Can you stay in the area, though, when you were there? I mean, now the ice hotel's melted. Can you stay? Is there, is there any other accommodation there? Absolutely, yes. The ice hotel actually has summer cabins, which are, are wooden, you know, classic uh, Scandinavian-looking cabins. And uh, so we stayed there because, you know, even you're in the Arctic Circle and, and it is green and there are loads of flowers and it actually got quite warm at one point. But uh, that's, you know, it also is very cold in between because you are in the Arctic Circle. So these are well-insulated, well-built cabins that are available throughout the year. Um, but that's where we stayed in summer. Now tell me about the reindeers. I always love the reindeer. They look so fabulous with those antlers. Did you see many of those? We did. They were grazing all over the show, in fact. And um, the one thing that I that I, I didn't know about reindeer is that they're actually not wild. They are all owned um, because they are so precious in in these parts of the world. There are, I mean, there are a few hundred thousand reindeer in, in Sweden, but all owned by by mostly the Sami nomads. And historically, you know, the reindeer is their is their wealth. They were altogether surprising little animals because they really are quite small. I was expecting them to be, you know, the size of a kudu. They're not. They're more the size of a big bush buck. Wow, um, really? Sure. So, and they, they, you know, they, 
just give the impression of being really sturdy, hardy, resilient creatures, um, which they obviously have to be in those conditions. But they, they're just, the two things I want to tell you that I thought was so interesting is that their fur, the actual hair is hollow, so it obviously stores air and makes their, you know, their skins, their hair, their fur so incredibly warm, the warmest ever. So it's, it's used by the nomads, you know, to line their boots and clothes and stuff and keep warm in winter. And then they, when they walk, they make a clicking sound, which is apparently a tendon in their, in their hooves or just above their hooves, and that's so that they can stay in contact with each other in blizzards when they can't actually see where they're going, which is quite amazing. The one thing I was reading some information that you wrote about uh, when you came back, and you said that th- I was I, something I didn't realize either was that their antlers molt. Yes, I can't figure out why this happens, but they do. I mean, when we saw them in summer, their antlers are velvety. They really do feel like they're covered in velvet, and um, then this all breaks off apparently and exposes, you know, the bony antler that we're more familiar with underneath. And apparently, it's quite a messy business when this happens, and. To be honest, not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> Just something else to know. It's another interesting little fact. Yeah, absolutely. Right, so tell me about the people. I'm assuming you've spent some time amongst the people there. Yes, you know, the time was spent really in and around this particular village. Um, it's just so beautiful. The people are are incredibly friendly, warm, hospitable. We didn't meet any, any Sami nomads because by the nature of their trade, they're nomadic. But we did learn a lot about the culture, which was so interesting because, um, you know, there are museums and um, sort of lifestyle centers where you can learn about the Samis. And we did taste their traditional food as well, which, of course, is reindeer in different forms, um, reindeer burgers and reindeer wraps and and also just learned about their lifestyle and, you know, why they have pointed boots which deflect snow when they're in, you know, snowy conditions. And, yes, it, it was just, it was absolutely fascinating. It's so far removed from anything, you know, that we're familiar with here at home. Now, you said you were in this little town of, is it Yekasyav? That's right. Was that the only town you visited or did you move about some? We didn't move about some because it's, it's all quite remote up there. So um, the distances, you know, to get from one village to the next is quite far and there isn't public transport or anything like that. So we decided to stay in one place and rather just absorb what there was around us there and spend a little time, a little downtime, really. The one thing I don't think I'd really like, I mean, it sounds fabulous, but I wouldn't like the fact that the sun shines literally 24 hours a day yeah. in summer. It's <laughs> something to get used to, I must say. So, yes, you know, if you're an insomniac, I, I would strongly suggest taking eye masks and everything else that might help you to sleep because it's really the midnight sun, um, which is around July, and I understand that can last for quite a couple of weeks, really, where the sun will literally just dip close to the horizon and then rise again. So there is no period of, of real twilight even. It's just broad sunshine. So, yes, the houses are, I mean, they're well equipped with blockouts and blackouts and all that sort of thing so that you can sleep. And the locals are obviously used to it, but um, it was, it did take some getting used to. And um, you can kind of run yourself ragged if you're waiting for darkness. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we've mentioned this before, um, one of the earlier chats, you spoke about fika time. Yes. 
Sika is, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's a Swedish tradition, um, an afternoon tea, essentially. But it's it's adhered to, you know, just like Bolton and Burevors goes with rugby for us. Literally at four o'clock, virtually on the dot, everyone stops, downs, tools, or whatever they're doing, and they have a cup of really good coffee because the coffee is good throughout Sweden, and they have something, a sweet treat, really, which... Um, in Stockholm, seem to be cinnamon buns, kanelbollen, they call them. But out of Stockholm, it's all sorts of things, beautiful little pastries and little marzipan, you know, intricate little marzipan creations. So people stop for just a few minutes, 10 or 15 minutes, forget everything else, enjoy their fika, and then carry on working again refreshed. That's and applies to everybody, regardless of you know what you're doing or where you work. That sounds seriously civilized. It's very civilized. <laughs> now, other than, than going around and looking at all the sort of the beautiful, I'm sure there's lots of quaint buildings and the people are interesting and the soon-to-be ice hotel, which is now the river, what else can you do in the area? It's Well, there's lots of adventure sports to do, you know, all related around the wilderness area and the river in this particular area. But, you know, you'll have wilderness and rivers all over the show in the Arctic. So there's everything from the kayaking and... Um, paddling and fishing and fly fishing to trekking and camping and all that sort of thing. Any, you know, anything you can imagine around outdoor adventure, really, um, particularly in summer because then it's weather permitting. In winter, of course, it's a different story, skiing and dog sleds and all that sort of thing. How long were you there for? In this particular village for about five, six days, which is a really long time in a tiny village. So, you know, we really did... Um, just get to get to appreciate the lifestyle there and and spend time instead of rushing through. Kerry, it sounds like one of those places. I wouldn't know if it was on your bucket list because it isn't that easy to get to for most people, I would imagine. But um, obviously, if you're going on one of these cruises and it's an, it's an offer to go off and, and have a look at, at somewhere like the Arctic Circle and pop off to Yukosyav, go and have a look. It's, it's definitely one of those little added bonuses that you weren't expecting to do. Definitely go off and do it. Absolutely. And, you know, it is it is just something so completely different and unusual, and it is wonderful to, you know, to post something on Facebook that says, hello from the Arctic Circle. <laughs> it is kind of quirky. <laughs> now, is this, if, if people went to look at the cruises.co.za website, would they see this as an add-on to the, uh, the Baltic tour that you did? No, this was something completely independent Separate. that okay. we did after the cruise. But really very easy to do because um, bearing in mind that everything in Sweden is super, super efficient and punctual and it all works. So it's not hard to do at all. It may sound, it is remote and it may sound difficult, but it's absolutely not. Oh, that sounds perfect then. So basically go off and do the cruise and then hop off in Stockholm, I think you said. That's right. And then yes. from there carried on up to the Arctic Circle. Sounds like a plan. Kerry, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. Great pleasure, Karen. I was chatting there with Kerry Harvey about her trip to the Arctic Circle. What a fabulous destination. And she got there initially because she was on a cruise, a Baltic cruise, on the Windstar. And if you'd like to find out more about that, the website is www.cruises.co.za. And if you'd like to find out more about what Kerry goes off and does and what she sees and, and writes about, have a look at her blog. It's kerryharvey.com and it's K-E-R-I hyphen harvey.com. Time to travel with Karen Key.
I'm sure you know by now if you're a regular visitor to Cape Town or if you're a local that the thing about Cape Town is we love to have our tea and especially our wine and all these fabulous things that we love to eat down here in the Cape. And you can do all of that, by the way, at Lamotte. And we've spoken to the people out at Lamotte before about the wine, about their fabulous cookery book that they've put out. Now they have the Winelands Tea. And to tell us a little bit more about that, I'm joined this evening by Heta van Dierventer to Blanche. And she's the culinary manager at Lamotte and of Pioneer Lamotte Restaurant. Heta, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen, and good evening to all the listeners. Because you really come out with all these amazing things out at Lamotte, and now you have the Wineland's Tea. What? Where did that come from? I think that the tea culture is gaining momentum in South Africa, and we wanted to do something uniquely South African. Instead of, you know, there's many different variations from the East or the British system, and we wanted to do something more from the heart. Now, you have this, as I said, at the Pioneer for Lamotte restaurant is the tea is served either on in the restaurant or on the stoop or in the garden and there's a whole selection of tea but the coffee drinkers aren't being left out here absolutely not you know and not even wine drinkers no. all, <laughs> <laughs> you can come and relax under the oak trees and just anything cup of tea there's a selection of beautiful teas to drink, to choose from and uh, coffee from a roaster just over the road so it's all freshly grounded and you know, can you can you smell the coffee? Mm, absolutely. <laughs> but the thing about the out there in the winelands, it's very much a tradition, especially the afternoon tea. Tell me a little bit about what is served with the tea. Hilda Gonda Duckett, who's in 1891, wrote her first book. And she she loved sweets. And she tells the story how they went as, as children on an annual holiday to the family in Clubmouth. And there they served... That, that was custom, afternoon tea. You know, when you, when you visit people, there was always a, a can of a, a, a bossy tea on the stove already, a pot of bossy tea on the stove. And, and she tells how it was a custom to serve preserves, confiture, like the French confiture mm. and whole figs with a little fork, your best little silver fork and, you know, in a glass bowl. And you, that went around, was served before the tea or the coffee. So that's and it was uh, that was a tradition in the Cape even long before that. And I was the, the other thing that I loved as well it was the things called Burayongans and Buramaces, and that's the raisins or apricots preserved in brandy. Yes, that's absolutely, and it's not something that you see quite often any longer. Mm. I think it's because it's uh, it's a tedious task and you have task and you have to wait, and you know. Two or three of those booty youngins and um, you're happy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Hitta, there's one other little tradition I wanted to ask you about, the sucking of a sweet and then sipping your tea through it. What was that? Well, we're so spoiled nowadays. You just go to the shop and you have icing sugar, caster sugar, granulated sugar. But, of course, it wasn't always like that. And sugar used to come in big cones and then you had to chip it off with a special little hammer or clip. And then these, or the small little candy, uh, sugar candies, they would, cubes or little rocks, uh, they would take between their front teeth and then sip tea through this sugar cube. And that was most probably, or no wonder, why they had such a lot of rotted teeth. And you would never see a smile on a a, a face, (laughs) painting. And the other thing, it's an old Cape custom, though, is to offer guests some sweet wine with their tea. Yes. You know, Van der Ham, obviously, is our yes. most well-known uh, soup, as we call it. But in days gone by, they didn't have the flavorings that, and 
unfortunately, artificial flavorings quite often that we use. So something like clove or mint would be, and that's how that developed. They took a strong spirit, flavored it, and sweetened it. And that was a little called a little sutsuopi. And at the tea, you can order something called straw wine. It's made from Viennier grapes. Yes, that's our very, very beautiful sweet wine made at La Motte. And that's something special that you don't see often in South Africa. And the things to eat, what is going, because I mean, I know out of La Motte you make the most fabulous food. And so what are we having with tea? It's a selection of sweet and savory, and it's not all served buffet style. So you, we serve it in beautiful teacups, beautiful porcelain, and then with that, you on a, your own personalized tray, you get something sweet, something savory. We have a smoked salmon pancake, cream cheese, capers, and then a, a, a delicious biltong shoe pastry. In, mm. They used to call it sous. But it's actually a shoe pastry and truffles, macaroons, and then you can choose your own cake of the day. We have a delectable choice of cakes as well. And the other thing about going out there, though, you have this wonderful tea and you've got a lovely little shop there. Which I, Those things are always my downfall are the lovely little shops everywhere because I just kind of feel I have to go in there. My credit card is not looking happy by the time I leave. And you've got the most beautiful porcelain teacups and all sorts of things that people can actually go home and reenact the whole situation when they get home. You know, during, um, that, that was, that, the teacups really is beautiful. It's made by a fine artist, or t- painted by her, Ella Lou O'Meara, um, in Cape Town. She was commissioned by Lamar to do it, and it, she painted in the pink colors, the famille rose, I hope I pronounced it correctly. She went to old to museums and she looked at old original porcelain ware, and she took those patterns and she painted that on the teacups and the and the teapots and it's absolutely exquisite and beautiful you know you just feel special when you drink out of that cup so when are people able to come out there now Heta? is it open monday to sunday or are there certain days and times we, we close on a monday the, it's available from tuesday to sunday but it is essential that you book before because i'm sure it gets filled up very fast how absolutely. many and it's freshly made, you know, so it's something that we freshly made only on reservation. Oh, right. Okay. So how far in advance do people need to book? 24 hours in advance. But that's actually rather nice. And you know, at least that if you're phoning to book, that they are going to be catering specifically for you. And it hasn't been something that's been made and sort of sitting around in a display case for a week. It's being made because you're coming. Absolutely. That's warm hospitality and, you know, that specially made for you Gosh, that's really you feel really special then i mean you're going to feel feel special anyway you're going to feel even more special if people come out there for the tea i mean they obviously can take a walk around lamotte and have a look while they're out there as well Corin, there's a lot of, on offer at lamotte there's the museum there's a hiking trail not, it's not open in winter but in, in summer months there's wine tasting sculpture walk there's a lot that can be on Lamotte. Well, if you're looking for something to do, and I'm sure if they have it inside, is there a fireplace there, Heta? In summer, outside, in winter, there's a cozy fireplace. Ooh. So, <laughs> winter days, welcome and warm inside. Well, I'm thinking about this sort of time of the year now. If people are coming out there now, they can sit there around the fire and have their tea, and oh, it sounds just heavenly for an afternoon. 
Hesha, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. Sounds like a wonderful time out there, especially in winter. I love the, the thought of sitting around a roaring fire and having a fabulous Wineland's tea. So thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. It was a total pleasure, and I'm immediately going to make a cup of warm tea for myself. <laughs> I was chatting there with Hesha van Deventer to Blanche, and she's culinary manager of La Marche and Pionier à la Marche restaurant. Now, if you'd like to go and partake of a Wineland's tea, it sounds absolutely fabulous. It is essential you book, Heta says. You need to book because they bake and cater especially for you coming the next day. So you, to be able to book, you need to phone them on 021-876-8800 or you can email them at pionief at lamotte.co.za. Now, pionief is P-I-E-R-N-E-E-F at la and then hyphen M-O-T-T-E. So pionief at lamotte.co.za. Time to travel with Karen Key. Developed by a South African entrepreneur, Brandon Wilson, an app entitled Awesome South Africa launched in February this year. It's available via Google Play and the App Store, which is Apple. It's free for users to download on Android and iOS. And vendors also list for free and able to update specials and news in real time. Now, that all just sounds Amazing. So I thought let's get Brandon on the show this evening to find out exactly what awesome South Africa is all about. Brandon, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good day. Yeah, you know, welcome. Thanks. Thanks so much. This just sounds amazing. It's also been endorsed by Tourism South Africa. Yes. Well, uh, yeah. Awesome South Africa has uh, been a, been around. We've uh, we've announced ourselves to the to the tourism boards uh, in South Africa as well as the Tourism SA. And yes. So what exactly does it offer? What exactly is on there? Okay, so the the app uh, it's actually to help vendors and merchants and businesses around South Africa to broadcast their specials, promotions, news, and events at a very reduced cost. The whole idea behind mobile is, of course, um, accessibility, getting things swiftly, efficiently through to to users of the application um, without obviously getting notifications going off as such. That's awesome South Africa in a, in a nutshell. But um, there's various categories on the app. For instance, you can actually book a flight through the app. There's fly. There's things to do in adventure, wedding venues, kids play, entertainment and nightlife, shopping, uh, quite a plethora uh, of things, varied uh, categories in there. There's also accommodation, restaurants, all that sort of thing as well. Restaurants, so. the whole works, embassies, currency, converter, um, emergency numbers. You just click on and dial and it just happens for you. It's well thought of. It's an app that I have the vision that, that it could be used throughout and replicated throughout Africa. And we've actually been getting inquiries from uh, Zimbabwe, Kenya and uh, Nigeria about it as well. Wow. And it's just more part of, of where we foresee things going. You know, gone are the days when when businesses now need to print brochures and flyers and things. It's getting a bit irritating at the traffic lights and on your car and, and everything else. And everyone's accessible through mobile. So the the whole idea is, of, of course, that when a consumer or user of the app wants to book into a, a place or to see a, a restaurant or whatever it's according to the behavior of the of the user so like i said it's not an, an app that pushes out notifications and and your phone pings all the time it's not that type of app that pinging drives me completely <laughs> insane so i'm all for something that isn't going to be pinging at me all the time now the thing is that isn't just for the 
the businesses and all those sort of people. This is great for both, I would imagine, tourists and locals because one of the things I rather liked was that you could actually punch in something and say you're looking for whatever. It was in 500 meters and it, or 500, is it 500 meter, kilometers? 500 kilometers, Yeah, yes. and it'll tell well, you where the service or product is located. Correct. Um, it's a, what we call a location-based app. So it doesn't work by, you know, which business can fork out the most money and appear in the top three. So it gives everyone a chance. So wherever you're located, whether you're in Springbok, Napier, or Paris, or Cape Town, or Durban, you know, the, the idea is, our first mission is obviously to get every vendor or merchant or business in South Africa on the app. It's free for them. So basically what, what we've done is, they can put these six images up, their description, uh, their services, their rates, their GPS coordinates, their contact details, email addresses, everything on the app. But what the vendor or the merchant has to pay for is obviously when they want to promote themselves. And by their promotion, we mean if they've got a special app or promotion or news or event, that's the, the part that they pay for. Otherwise, to be listed on the app is free. So our whole point of view on, 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 on how, how we foresee uh, things running is that Awesome South Africa is not a parasitic model. We don't take commissions from a booking. You only pay for the promotion, that's it. You pay for the advert as a, as a vendor, and that we charge a minimal fee of 2,000 Rand a year, and you, you can push out as many specials or events or whatever you've got lined up for the year. And what has the uptake been like so far, Brandon? Well, we are, within a few months, it's about 10,000 downloads, 55% of them being international, wow. 45% uh, South African. And it's growing. We are appealing for more businesses to to list on the on the on the app um, under awesomesouthafrica.com. They click on free listing, free business listing. And you know, when they foresee, like, wait a second, um, I need to separate myself from the other fifteen or twenty businesses that are just like me. And the only way you can separate yourself is by two things: either by giving you a really good deal, which is your special, and obviously your service that you provide to the the consumer coming to your to your place of establishment or to your business. So you've actually in the new app now that you'll be releasing in the next few days, people will be able to try to review now on your or the of the experience at your place. And of course we've also now put in the social media plugins of every vendor as well so that people can now like and follow and share and distribute the vendor's business or establishment as such. Sure, so you've pretty much covered all the bases here. Yes, it's very important because um, I have a big passion for, for, for businesses in South Africa. You know, the days of spending exorbitant budgets on, on just marketing and, and really not making a profit to, to be able to grow your business, you know, that's, that's my big vision. The whole thing is only pay for what you need to pay for. You need to pay for the advert, pay for the advert. But at the, at the, at the, the, second, the second part of it is obviously that we want to see business in South Africa create jobs. Maybe you've got a guest house, you can put a new wing to a guest house. Or maybe you've, you've, you've improved so much, your profits are looking good, you can start a tour company from your guest house, etc. And then, you know, it's the spin-off that we're looking at. The, the bigger vision, the bigger model of this whole thing is not only connecting the, the consumer to the business, but it's actually to make sure that businesses actually foresee a profit, making, 
you know, they, they, the bookings are taking place. They are, they are really booking and things are happening. And that goes for, for anyone, anyone, even anyone with a, with a home business can even, can even list on you. If you're selling whatever, maybe you make jams from your home, you can list on me. If you're an artist, you can list on me under art and design. If you, uh, gosh, uh, an up-and-coming uh, band and you're playing at, say, for instance, it's say observatory, people don't know of a, a certain nightclub, you can put your, your event up on me. People can follow you from me. You know, a lot of up-and-coming or startups, and they don't have the budgets to compete with the, the guys that are, that are there already. So this is an app for everyone. It's an app that's really going to level the playing field and give people equal opportunity. You know, people need a choice. You know, I don't want to go to the, always to the, maybe to the touristic things. I want to see a little bit of culture. I want to see a bit of local stuff. I want to see what's, what's happening in the, in, in, in certain areas, you know, that we've probably never heard of. Like maybe it is an art and culture center that, that no one has experienced except through, through going to the obvious, um, central business district and, being led to the obvious ones that are out there. There's, there's plenty more. There's plenty more to offer. And South Africa has a lot to offer. Just oh. that. I was about to sort of say, you know, the whole way of traveling now, tourists coming in here, especially from overseas, they are not just wanting to see, well, that's Table Mountain and that's Robben Island and that's what, those are the, the tourist destinations. They want to experience life in the city. They want, like, if they go to Johannesburg, they want to experience life in Joburg. And, and this is where they can actually see what the locals are doing and the kinds of things the locals are going to and experiencing. If they look at something like this, they've got literally the tourist things on there as well and they can go and find somewhere to stay and sleep and do whatever or take a tour somewhere but also they can see exactly what we're doing every day and they can experience our life effectively they can walk in our shoes you know um like i said i I take it for instance like your tourists coming in you don't necessarily just want to see like you're saying now those touristic places like obvious attractions but the attraction of maybe seeing a a, what afrikaans rock is about so you know Mm. that's something different Uh, or an artist displaying his work not at a normal gallery, maybe it's at a restaurant and he's got his exhibition going on there and you can see it online like, wait, I actually want to go and see what's happening out there. Or um, maybe it's a culinary thing, um, you know, we've got a Indian culture in South Africa, we've got an Islamic culture, we have, a, you know, varied cultures, so obviously uh, Zulu, Kosa, Bondo and everything else, so we can experience which cultures are, are, are providing various services and, and products and, and as such. So it's um, it's very exciting. I'm very pleased with with where we are at right now, but we are appealing for more businesses to list and to, you know, to really turn the, 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 the whole model on its head now and, and, and really go for it because, you know, if you look at anyone from the CEO to someone working in the call center, What's next to them at their at their PCs or their telephones or if it's their mobile devices next to them? It's it's always there, and more and more searches are being done by mobile. So when we look at uh, what Awesome South Africa offers, it's just convenience at the touch of a button. Well, guess where I'm going when we finish chatting now. I'm going to go and, go and have a look at this myself. Um, Brandon, it sounds like an amazing opportunity for so many people. And thank you very much indeed for sharing with us tonight. And hopefully I'll talk to you again in the future. And you'll say, gosh, we can't keep up now. There's way too many people now. We have to do something about this. So, <laughs> I'm hoping that, yeah. <laughs> um, that in the Johannesburg area, yeah, we, we'd like more vendors from Johannesburg and 
you know, I'm, I'm based in Cape Town, so there's a lot of Cape Town-based businesses on the on the application. But we would like for Johannes, you know, people in Johannesburg and Orange Free State. And the rest of the country, basically. Yeah, to start joining the movement. I mean, we've got some great things happening and really going to take off. Well, good luck with that, Brandon. I hope it will talk soon and you'll be telling me you can't keep up with all the people. So that'll be great. <laughs> but thank, thank you so and much, good luck. Dear. Good luck with that. It sounds amazing. Thanks so much. So, Cheerio. Good night. South, Af- South African entrepreneur Brandon Wilson, he developed the app, the Awesome South Africa app. And if you'd like to go and find out more about it, there is a website. It's www.awesomesouthafrica.com. And that's it for Time to Travel for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. If you've missed any information, you can find it on Facebook. Go to Travel on SAFM or email me on travel at safm.co.za. I'll be back with you next Monday evening with the Law Report, so join me then. Well, it's time now for some nighttime music.